We are in our series, There's So Much More to the Story, and today we're on episode seven titled Tables Turned. Hey guys, it's Amber, wife, mother, warrior, type A child of God. Here at Little Things, we examine everyday issues from a biblical perspective with one simple goal, to know and love God more. Thanks for joining me. When we left Esther, she was preparing to go to the king. And I love how the People's Bible opens Esther chapter 5. They said, after she had prepared herself spiritually with fasting and prayer, Esther prepared herself physically for her encounter with the king. This is a place where we need to stop and really think about these words. How many problems could we avoid, or at least not make worse, if we did likewise. If we set our minds to seeking God, if we spent a night wrestling with God in prayer, if we sought God and in his word and sought guidance, if we asked God to intervene prior to going to people and confronting them prior to having that talk with your spouse or your boss or your wayward child, how many times couldn't we avoid really tough situations if we only paused and asked God into the situation? He might do for us exactly what he ended up doing for Esther, which was to say, wait, this isn't the right time. Let me work. And in my time, in my way, I'll get things done for you. So after Esther had prepared, she went to the king. And whatever fears she had were completely found to be unnecessary because Xerxes was pleased to see her and extended the gold scepter. And not only did he do that, but he also promised that he would give her anything up to half of his kingdom. Think about that too. How much wasted worry is in our life. We think about things that could happen. We waste time and energy and we stress about so many things and how many of those things actually come to pass. Why don't we instead commit everything in our lives to God and wait on him? You know, if the diagnosis comes, then okay, we will deal with it. Or If the worst case scenario happens, then we'll have to try something else. But why waste our time on things that may not even happen? I think this is a huge tool of the devil. He loves to sidetrack us and loves to make us think, oh, this will happen or this will happen. And if this happens, oh my goodness, this is going to be the worst case scenario. Where all throughout the Bible, Jesus keeps telling us, as he told his disciples, do not fear. Be strong and courageous. Just put your trust in God. So Esther told the king, you know, I've prepared a banquet for you and Haman. Now, why a banquet? Well, Jason though Baxter in his book, Explore the Book, said this, by such a banquet as she knew the king loved, she would make the more sure of his favor and at the same time ensure the presence of Haman himself when she exposed his wicked plot. 
Haman would thus be tongue-tied. He would not be able to deny the truth of the accusation, nor would he dare to contradict the queen in the very presence of the king, nor would he get any opportunity of misrepresenting the matter to the king in the queen's absence. So Baxter said that this whole idea of having a banquet was actually genius. She knew the king loved his banquets and it would give her an opportunity to have the king's attention completely without Haman undermining her or saying, no, that's not true. So she invited him to a banquet. But while she was there, the king said to her, Esther, what's what's troubling you? What do you want? I'll give you anything up to my half my kingdom. And she said, come to a banquet tomorrow and I'll answer you then. Now, why did she stall? Why did she wait? Why didn't she say anything at that first banquet? We can only give the credit to God. We don't know what Esther was thinking. We don't know what was transpiring in her thoughts or in her soul. If she just had a feeling that things weren't right, if something was happening at the banquet that she thought, "Mm, this isn't the right time. We have no idea because we weren't given any clues. And maybe she didn't even know. Maybe she thought that she just lost courage. Maybe she went home from that first banquet saying, I'm such a fool. Why couldn't I get the courage up? God, give me the courage tomorrow and I won't disappoint you and I won't let my people down. We don't know what was going on. But what we do know is that God was at work in a masterful way. So Haman left on top of the world, just full of of absolute glee right until he saw Mordecai. Mordecai, there he was at the king's gate, and he refused to bow to Haman. And so Haman went home, called his friends, and he boasted about how he dined with the king and Esther and how great it was, but he was annoyed because Mordecai didn't bow. Now, two things. First of all, we see that Haman, had he had social media, would have plastered his feed with pictures of the king, right? He would have been all about making sure that everybody knew that he had met with important people and he was all it. I just want to say, you know, be the kind of person that doesn't kiss and tell. That's what I call it anyway. You know, a lot of people post pictures every time they meet with anybody. I meet with a lot of people all the time and have, you know, coffee with them or whatever. Some are people in high places and some are just friends. But I make a point to not post things on social media because what what exactly is the point? Do you want people to be thinking that you're bigger or better than you are? Or to think that you're somehow important because of who you meet and what you do? I mean, think of Jesus meeting Nicodemus that night. These conversations matter. I want my friends to know that they're safe with me, 
that I'm not going to be telling everybody, oh, I had coffee with so-and-so, and this is what we talked about, and can you believe it? No, I, I that's not important to me. The friendship is important to me. Now, there was one situation that I absolutely insisted that we put something on social media, and that was when I met last fall with the Time of Grace CEO, Matt Trotter. So we he was going through town, and we were just meeting at Panera to have a meeting, and um, yeah, two people from church, women. One was a woman, and one was actually one of the teens that I teach were there, and they just, you know, different times just came and said, hey, Amber, how you doing? Whatever. And I said to him, we are posting a, a picture on social media and letting people know that we were here for a business meeting so that my people in my church and my teens don't think that I was out on a date with another guy. Totally different thing. So we did post the picture. Matt was very, um, very good about, you know, being all okay about that. But in general, I'm just saying, you know, just go and have the time with people, whether it's your family or your friends or the people from your church or whatever, and don't feel a need to make sure that everybody knows what you've done. So John Piper talks a lot about pride. He, he talked specifically about pride in the Corinthian church, was, which was really a neat um little thing for me to read. I I guess I hadn't even noticed it before. But first and second Corinthians both, um, they, they talk a lot about pride. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote these book, addresses and confronts pride. And you see just how much Paul talked about how pride should have no part in a believer's life. That doesn't matter who sows the seeds. It doesn't matter who waters the seeds. And if we're going to boast, if we're going to boast about anything, be just boast about how good God is. But you know, Haman wasn't a believer. Haman was all about the pride and all about the arrogance. And pride is completely from the devil. That was Satan's sin. That's what Satan still works on. That's his motivation. He opposed God and wanted to be his equal. And so he set himself up against God. So Haman was aligning himself with Satan, and he was oozing with pride. He just thought he was all this. Now, one of the things I want us to think about is how annoyed Haman was by the fact that he had seen Mordecai. Okay, so just think about this. He had just had this banquet with the king and the queen. He went home to friends. He had a family. He had quite the house. He had all kinds of wealth. And yet he let some little tiny insignificant detail make him completely ungrateful and it ruined his entire day. Now, how often don't we do the same thing? Look at where you live. Do you have a roof over your head? Do you have your own apartment or your own house? Are you safe? Do you have cupboards of food? Do you have more than one set of clothes? Do you have a car? Do you have a job? Do you have money in the bank? Do you have a spouse, children, people who love you? Are you able to move your legs and your arms? Are you able to walk? Do you have health? Or if you don't, have you had health in the past? Has God been gracious to you? Has he provided for you? Have you had good health care? How often do we overlook the 
abundant goodness of God to grumble and complain about insignificant details. Stop. Satan wants us to ignore all of God's blessings and just dwell on something so minor. Stop. Be grateful. Right now, pause. Thank God for his enormous and abundant goodness in your life. So back to Haman. So Haman's wife suggested, hey, why don't you just build a gallows? And first thing in the morning, you get permission to hang Mordecai. And then you can go to the second banquet and celebrate knowing that you won't have to deal with uh, with Mordecai ever again. And that sounded good to Haman. Why wouldn't it? He wanted to destroy all the Jews Because one man wouldn't bow down to him. Why wouldn't he build a gallows? Why wouldn't he think, why don't I just kill the guy? That will be the end of all my problems. So he put the order in and a gallows was built. Now, here is where we start to see the absolute magnificence of God. So Jason Lowe Baxter writes this. Um, With the opening of the sixth chapter comes the sudden new turn of events. The crisis, which has been providentially anticipated, is now amazingly overruled. With consummate skill, he that sitteth on the heavens turns the tables on the wicked and delivers his own people. A few master strokes and the whole situation is revolutionized. The dramatic irony of the new developments which now rapidly succeed each other, leaves us exclaiming, truth is stranger than fiction. As a lit major, I can attest to this. You cannot write the truth because people won't believe it. More than once in a creative writing class, we would be reading a story by one of the authors in the class. And someone would say, this sounds so unbelievable. And they, you know, defend their work and say, no, no, this really happened. We're like, it doesn't matter if it really happened. You can't write that because nobody's going to believe that it happened. (laughs) How often isn't that the case, especially when God is involved? So what happens? Xerxes couldn't sleep that very night and asked for the chronicles of his reign to be read to him. Now, Josephus, the historian, wrote this, quote, one that found to have received a country on account of his excellent management. I'm sorry. One was found to have received a country on account of his excellent management on a certain occasion. Another was found to have a present made him on account of his faithfulness. Then the scribe came to Bigthana and Teresh, the eunuchs that had made a conspiracy against the king, which Mordecai had discovered. And when the scribe said no more but that, and was going on to another history, the king stopped him and inquired whether it was not added that Mordecai had a reward given him. And when he said that there was no such addition, he inquired the hour of night it was. And when he was informed that it was already day, he gave the order that if they found any of his friends already come and standing in the court, they should tell him, end quote. Now, Haman had gotten up early and went to the king to ask to have Mordecai hanged. So he was brought in. And Xerxes asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, remember the chronicles. One man was given a country. One man was given a gift. Warner Franzman points out that here Haman became the victim of his own conceit. 
the inflated ego of Haman led him to conclude that he was the one the king would want to honor. So Haman suggested that would make people see his worth. He said, put the man in a royal robe that the king has worn and put him on a royal horse that the king has ridden and entrust the horse and the rider to one of the king's nobles and let him lead the horse throughout the streets proclaiming, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Baxter writes this, Haman's proposal lays bare his unbounded conceit, his sickly thirst for the praise of men, and his paltry, that is petty, idea of greatness. Haman thought, well, you know, if I wear what the king wears, and if I'm riding on the horse that the king rode on, then I also am great. It doesn't matter what I've done, doesn't matter what I've said, doesn't matter that I have any ambition whatsoever, but just simply by being put in that situation, people will know that I am great. Now imagine Haman's surprise when the king tells him to go and do so for Mordecai the Jew, the very man he was going to ask the king to have hanged. But Josephus says that Mordecai was equally amazed and disgusted. Josephus says that Mordecai was in sackcloth and thought Haman was coming to mock him. And it took some convincing to get him in the robe and on the horse. Can you even imagine? Both of these men must have just been in shock. Haman's one and only goal was to destroy Mordecai and his people. And Mordecai is suddenly being led on horseback throughout the city by Haman. Whew! Haman gets home from this ordeal in absolute humiliation. And the friends who just had fluffed his feathers 24 hours before and said, build a gallows, just hang that man on it, get rid of him, and then you can go and you can be with the queen and you can be with the king. They have a sudden change of heart. They say, oh, since Mordecai's a Jew, you will surely come to ruin. And just then the eunuchs come to whisk Haman off to his second banquet, where Esther has been given the courage she needs to tell the king she needs his help. She and her people were sold for destruction. Now, the People's Bible mentions that her statement, if we had merely been sold as slaves, may actually, according to the footnote in the NIV translation, be translated that the loss of service that the king would suffer if these people were destroyed, would be greater than the money, than the gain of money that was promised to him. So what she was saying is, listen, um, if you lose these people in your kingdom, you are going to be at a great loss. It's going to hurt you. Yeah, you might get money in your treasury, but you will lose the service of these people who are working on your behalf. Her entire speech, go read it, was just so respectful and diplomatic and made sure that the king understood that she was looking out for him as well as herself. Well, (laughs) Xerxes had no idea what was going on. He said, who dared to do this? And Esther said, 
this vile man, Haman. So the king gets up in a rage and he goes to the gardens and the people's Bible says this, Haman knew his only hope was to have Esther intercede for him. If we did not know better, we would think it was terribly bad luck that Haman fell on the queen at the very moment the king returned to the banquet hall. But by now we recognize the ruling hand of God who directs all things so they turn out for the good of his people. He walks in to find Haman falling on top of his wife. And at that, the eunuchs say, you know, Haman has erected a gallows for Mordecai the Jew. And Xerxes says, hang him on it. Just like that. In one day's time, everything is switched. What was absolute sorrow and sadness and looked like the worst case scenario for the Jews became rescue. And Haman, who was in high spirits thinking he was on top of the world, came to destruction and ultimately death. Well, what can we learn from this? Aside from the things that I've already mentioned about, you know, pausing to pray and spiritually prepare yourself about not embracing worrying as a time of life, especially as Christians, worry should just not be in our day in our day to day, you know, process. We should, as things come up, remember who God is. But also, more than anything, I really want to give you hope. No matter how bad things look, God is in complete control. He watches out for his people, and at exactly the right time, in a profoundly unbelievable and just genius, um, Sidlow Baxter wrote, uh, consummate, which means complete or perfect way, with consummate skill, he said, with God's complete and perfect skill, he can turn everything around and work on our behalf in ways that we would never dream. So if you're in the middle of something really horrific right now, and you don't know how things are going to go, submit to God. Don't think for one minute that you have it in yourself to fight this battle alone because none of us do. We absolutely need to align ourselves with God because he is the only one who can get us out of most situations. Like the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, we're fighting against forces of, of evil and darkness. Like these are forces that are far stronger than we are, but they're not even close to as strong as God is. So just submit yourself to God. Make sure he is in the situation. Refuse to worry about it. Trust and watch as he turns the tables. This has been Little Things because in God's kingdom, the little things are the big things.
Thanks for listening to Little Things today. I know that there are so many things that you could listen to, so I don't take it for granted that you are here listening to me now. I want to listen to you. If you have any feedback or suggestions, if there's topics that you'd like to see me cover, or if you'd just like to say hi, go ahead and drop me an email at amber at timeofgrace.org.